So turn with me this morning to the epistle to the Corinthians, first epistle to Corinthians, chapter 11. As we continue this study on the Lord's Supper, we come to the important portion of the New Covenant. So let's start this morning by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin reading at verse 23 to the end of that chapter, and then we're going to go to Hebrews. Follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Thank you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took a cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of our Lord. But let a man examine himself And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This morning we're going to concentrate upon the cup, the cup of the new covenant, So Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to read starting at verse 7. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. It says this. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding uh, finding fault with them, he says, Behold, The day is coming, and says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in... My law in their minds and write them in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none of them his uh, and none his brother saying, know the Lord, for thou shalt know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And that he says, a new covenant he has made 
the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. So as we considered last week, the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the importance of what that meaning was, of what that meaning looked like, of how a somber occasion that is. To remember not just the Lord in his life, not just to remember the Lord and his teachings, but to remember his death. To remember that He loved us. To remember that He died for us. That's why we come together. And the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. And in that Lord's Supper, He also instituted the New Covenant. He said there in in the three Gospels, as He says, as He lifts that cup and He gives thanks, He says, this cup is my blood of the New Covenant. Here in Corinthians, He says, this is the cup of the New Covenant in my blood. And I will be honest with you. I was ignorant to the, what the new covenant was for many years. And so I, I ask you, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, do you know the new covenant? Do you know what the terms are of the new covenant? For it, it, It's pivotal. It's important to know as a believer what the terms of the new covenant are. And so we, we, we're, we're turning here. To Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll we'll come back here to to 1 Corinthians 11 uh, towards the end to expound upon the second half of that portion. But here we have the writer to the Hebrews expounding upon the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, if you didn't know, was the covenant of the law. In fact, let's let's do this because it's it's actually a very important thing. Let's turn and read a portion of that Old Covenant when it was affirmed by by Israel. Turn to the book of Exodus real quick and we'll read a little bit just to get an image in your mind of what that covenant was. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 19. I I was going to skip it for lack of time, but the Word of God does not return void. So let's turn and read Exodus, I'm sorry, not 19. To 24, I'm sorry, Exodus 24, where, where we have the scene of Moses and the people in the affirmation, um, the ratification of the covenant, the first covenant. Exodus chapter 24, here you have Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. Remember, a couple of chapters before, the Lord came down to Mount Sinai to meet his people, for the people to meet him. And he came in great thundering and great loud uh, 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 earthquakes and, and smoke and so forth. Here Moses comes down with the law. And it says, Now he said to Moses, Come come, uh, come up to I'm sorry, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, sh- uh, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice. Now listen. And said, all the words of the Lord, uh, all the words that, uh, I'm sorry, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mount, Mount Sinai, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he set uh, young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings 
and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in a basin. And half of the blood he sprinkled it on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made according to all these words. And Moses went up and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stones. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. And on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hands. So they saw God and they ate and drank. And so here you have this vivid story of the first covenant. Here you have God declaring his covenant to his people. And one thing I want to be clear to you is that this was a two-party covenant. We don't have time to go to it, but if you turn back to chapter 19, the Lord says, listen, I'm going to make a covenant with you and the children of Israel. And if you obey my voice and if you obey my commandments, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will bless you. And so Moses, for three chapters, sat up in that, in that Mount Sinai, and he, he took it all down. He wrote down all the laws of the Lord. And he came down, and he presented before the people. We read it. He went before the people and said, this is, these are the, the terms of the covenant that the Lord wants to, wants to commit to you. And the people heard it. And, and, and in earnest heart, they said, all that the Lord says, we will do. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. So if you're in agreement, let's make this official. And I want you to think about the imagery because it's, a, it's very important. Here Moses builds an altar. And 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he, and he gets the young men and he sacrifices burnt offerings to the Lord. And peace offerings to the Lord. And he takes in a big basin half the blood of the sacrifice. And the other half, he sprinkles it on the altar. And then he reads the terms of the covenant. He reads the terms of the covenant. Starts with the Ten Commandments. And goes on to the moral law. And continues on and on. And the people are standing there listening to the terms of the covenant. And when they've heard it all, they said, all that the Lord says, we will do and obey. Well, if you're in agreement, then let's ratify the covenant. Let's seal the deal. And so he takes the, the other half of the blood and sprinkles it on the people to seal the covenant, to ratify it. Now you know what happened. Moses, well, you have this beautiful scene, by the way. There, Moses and the high priest and the high priest's sons and the 70 elders go approach the mountain. And there they see the foot of God and it's like a, like a work of sapphire stones. 
And the brilliance of it is like heaven. And it says that they sat down. They sat down and ate and drank. They had fellowship with God. What an honor. What a privilege. They got to to witness and be in the presence of God and to commune with the living God. What a marvelous thing. Sadly, you know the rest of the story, right? Moses goes up into the mountain, just like the Lord said, only you, Moses. Moses goes up into the mountain. And for 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gives him the plan of the tabernacle. If I'm going to be your, your God and you're going to be my people, I'm going to dwell with you. And this is how it's going to be. And the Lord gave him the instructions. And for 40 days and 40 nights, it didn't rain. Moses received instruction from the Lord. And what was happening down in the camp? They were breaking the very law they agreed to obey. And so when we come to to Hebrews here, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to Hebrew believers. Those who grew up with the temple, those who grew up with the sacrificial system, those who grew up with that first covenant. And he says to them, for if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now, I want to be careful here. Was there something wrong with the first covenant? Is God's law imperfect? Far from it. The fault was not with God. The fault was not with the law. But the fault was with who? It was the people. And he says it. Because finding fault with them. You see, the law... The law is a great teacher, isn't it? The New Testament calls it a tutor. It calls it a tutor. Why? Because it reveals the heart of man. It reveals who we are. You see, that first covenant was the law given to us in tablets of stones. Now, when I say tablets, I'm not talking about an iPad. I'm talking about an actual stone tablet. Some of the young kids may be, may be confused, Right? An actual stone tablet with the law written on it. And the Ten Commandments aren't unreasonable. They're not unreasonable. And if you look at them, you you may say, I remember as a young child, my my parents teaching me the Ten Commandments, and I'm thinking, yeah, I I can do that. It doesn't seem that hard. (laughs) Oh, did my young heart realize very quickly. How deep my sinful nature was. We read in Romans chapter 8 that the problem was not the law. The problem was that the law was weak through the flesh. You see, the law told us what to do and how to live, but it never gave you the power to do it. The law always stood outside of the individual. That was the old covenant. And so the Lord, in, the, in His mercies there, 
given to Jeremiah, Jeremiah in chapter 31. Our brother had us there in 2 Kings, there when the people were exiled. Why were they exiled? Why was all of Israel and all of Judah cast out of the land of of, of Palestine, the promised land? Why were they cast out? Because they failed to keep His law. God's covenant with them was, remember I said a two-party covenant. Meaning there there was two parties that were involved. And God says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And God in his infinite mercy and grace patiently labored with them generation after generation after generation. And each generation progressively got worse and worse to a point that the Lord could not keep them. They had become as bad as the people that were living there before they got there. And the Lord kicked them out. Oh, but God in His grace, God in His mercy, there Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the man who saw his people being exiled, he would give them a glimmer of hope, a new covenant I will give to thee. A new covenant I will give to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Now listen, this covenant is not like the first. You may say, well, he he writes the law in our hearts. Isn't the law part of the old covenant? Yes, it is. But it's completely different. In what way? Well, first of all, look down at these verses. And and, and I want you to, I'm going to emphasize something and I want you to catch it. Verse 10, it says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, saying, Lord, I will put my law in their hearts, I'm sorry, in their minds, and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Did you catch what I was emphasizing? Who has the responsibility? Who carries the burden in the new covenant? Is it you? Is it the Lord? Yes. The first covenant was a two-party covenant. And it was the Lord's blessing was contingent upon their obedience. And the law who was outside of them, written in stone, they couldn't keep. Now the new covenant stands different in that the burden is on the Lord. The burden is on the Lord to carry it out. The burden is on the Lord to see it through in your heart and in my heart. So let's talk in details about this new covenant. There's three facets that I see here in this new covenant. The first facet is pretty simple. The law is within. The law is within. 
it solves one of the major problems. Your heart. What, what, what does the Bible say about man's heart? In fact, that, that prophet of old Jeremiah had the best description of it. The heart is what? Deceitful. Above all things. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? How does God change that heart? Well, it's a new heart. You see, when Nicodemus approached the Lord at night, right? There in John chapter 3, he he approached the Lord and, and he began to talk to the Lord. And the Lord began to speak to him about things of the kingdom. And he says to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus' mind was like, what? What what are you talking about? And the Lord said, Nicodemus, you being the teacher of the Jews, you being the teachers uh, uh, of, of this nation, you don't know this. How can I... Give you anything else? How can I how can I speak to you of the great things to come? You see, Jeremiah should have known this. You see, Jeremiah spoke of a new heart, new life, new beginning. You see, how is the how is God going to accomplish his new covenant and his law? His law didn't change, by the way. His law didn't become easier, which is actually an important point. Did you know that the law from the old to the new is enhanced? What do I mean by that? Well, the law says, thou shall not murder. I think think we're good with that one, right? Nobody here has murdered anybody, right? In the New Testament, the Lord says, it's not just, you, you, you have heard that, you, that it says, thou shalt not murder, right? But I say to you, he who hates in his heart. You see how it was elevated? He who hates in his heart has committed what? Murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Oh, but I tell you, he who lusts in his eyes and his heart. Has already committed it. The law has not become easier. It's been exemplified in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. How does the Lord work this out? Well, He gives you a new heart. He gives you new life. Second Peter chapter uh, chapter one puts it the way: he, You're partakers of a, of a divine nature. He writes the law in our minds and in our hearts. Term one, second term, I must hurry. Knowing God. Knowing God. This morning at our Lord's Supper, we talked about knowing you, the one true God and His Son. One of the privileges that the New Testament and the New Covenant gives to us is that we get to know God in a personal way. It says there, it says, For I will be their God and they shall be my people. It says, None of them shall teach his neighbor, 
and know his and, and none his brother saying, know the Lord. Now I tell you this, the word there, the phrase to know or the know the Lord in the Greek is a very intimate no. It's not just the fact that you know somebody, but it's that you know them personally, the way you know a family member, a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife. The second term of the covenant is that you will know the living God in a marvelous way. You know, a a single person who's looking to be married may may have friends who try to set them up, right? It it never happened to me, but I know of people, right? They're single and they're looking and they say, listen, I I know so-and-so. He's a great guy. He he, he loves the Lord. He's responsible. And and, and the girls are listening. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sounds like a good deal, you know? Sounds like like this, this, we'll call him John, sounds like a promising guy. And she knows about them. But her knowing about John is different than marrying John and knowing John. Right? There's a huge leap from hearing about him to meeting him, dating him, being engaged to him, and then being married to him. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning, we don't just know God, but we know him in the most intimate way. And he knows us. What a glorious covenant this is. You know, it's also very true that the the knowing of him is essential to the Christian life. It's a personal relationship with the living God. It's not like, like, like what we read there in Exodus chapter 24, where the Lord says, listen, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 others, you come near, but you stay afar, from afar. You're going to worship from afar, he says. He says, but you, only Moses come up. And Moses had the intimate privilege to go up into the mountain and to stand before the presence of the living God, his creator. I tell you, your privilege is not with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 priests. Seventy elders. Your privilege is greater than Moses. For you and I, a believer in Jesus Christ, can have a personal relationship with the living God. It is essential. Listen, Matthew chapter 7, you have this, this scene in heaven, and it's a, it's a tragic scene. The Lord says that, that there in heaven, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord. Have I not cast out devils in your name? Have I not done many wonderful things in your name, Lord? And the Lord looks down at them and says, Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, God is sovereign. God is omniscient. God knows all things. God knows who that person is. What does he mean he does not know him? He does not know him in a personal relationship like a believer should. And the analogies go on in the New Testament. 
We're made sons. Galatians chapter four. The Lord, the Lord, the good shepherd. He says, he says, my sheep know me. They know my voice. The intimacy between the believer and him is ever entwined and ever knit together. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know him as your personal savior, you're here just because you come to church. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is to know you, the one true God. That is the Christian life. That is the Christian life. Let me move on. That was the second term, right? We have first the law within, knowing God. And lastly, and most importantly, God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness. It says, much more can be said, but it says here that I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And to their, and their sins I will, and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. A couple things before we go back to 1 Corinthians. The Lord in his perfect wisdom and inspiration of writing this set things in the correct order. He first said, I'm going to write my law in their minds and in their hearts. And that's wonderful. As a new believer, you have a, you have a new desire to do the will of God. And you want to go about pleasing God. And, 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 and you and your zeal and your enthusiasm, you move forward and you're excited and there's joy and there's, there's happiness in the Lord. But surely after you start, you find that you stumble. And, and you break that law that he's written in your heart. What now? Is he going to, to, to cast me out as he did Israel? No. The last term of this covenant is I will have mercy on their righteousness. And their sins and lawless deed I will remember no more. The Christian walk is a walk. It's a process. It's a big word. It's sanctification. It's the process of sanctification of the believers. Simply means you're slowly being made holy before God. And as a believer walks with the Lord and draws closer to Him, He is sanctified, set apart a little more each day. A little more each week, a little more each month, a little more each year, and so on, and so on. And the Lord works in your heart and in your mind to make you like His Son. But when you stumble, 1 John chapter 1 puts it beautifully. For if anyone would stumble and fall, And sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, when we stumble and fall, the accuser of the brethren stands in heaven before the throne and says, look what your children are doing. 
And our advocate stand before the, the Father and said, I have paid the price. When we read that phrase, that his, our sins and our lawless deeds, he will not remember. It doesn't mean that God the Father all of a sudden has amnesia. He doesn't look over to his son and see the marks in his hands and his side and his feet and say, what happened to you? No, he knows. He knows exactly what you've done. He knows exactly what I've done. It's a legal term. His sins, our sins, I'm sorry, our sins and lawlessness, he will remember no more. He will never bring them up. I, I can illustrate that with an example from my own life. Some time ago, I was driving on the highway on I-95, and I was late. And if you've ever driven on I-95 during rush hour, a couple years ago, uh, there's that HOV lane, right? You guys know what the HOV lane is? It's a carpool lane. And when you're sitting there in traffic and that lane is wide open, it's the most frustrating thing in the world. And it, it, me, in, in my hurry and being late, I said, well, I, I need to get there. And so I got on that lane. And I drove down maybe a couple miles. And, and as I went over a bridge, there was a state trooper. <laughs> Waved me down, pulled me over, and gave me a ticket. Deservingly so. And he told me, he said, listen, I know it's, a, it's just a fine. It's, it's a non-moving violation. It's no big deal. I said, okay, well, it's, 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 it's a big deal to me, but regardless, it's just a fine. I thought nothing of it. When I went to pay for it, they're like, okay, it's, it's $150 and three points on your license. I said, whoa, whoa, hold on, three points on my license. My insurance is going to skyrocket. Jamie's going to kill me. Like, 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 like that's not going to happen, right? And, 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 and the lady's like, well, it's three points. I'm like, I thought it was a non-moving violation. He goes, no, it's a moving. I'm like, were you moving? I go, yeah, I was moving. Then it's a moving. I'm like, like, well, if you want to contest it, you can go to court. And I'm like, okay, let me contest it. Because the guy told me this, right? In all sincerity, he told me it was a non-moving violation. So I contested it. And I went to court. If you've ever been to traffic court, it's it's, it's a bunch of us guilty people sitting in a chair. (laughs) And, and, And you come before a judge, and the judge says, uh, you have a speeding ticket. How do you plead? And, and, and it's and it's like a it's like a drive-through almost, right? And most people go in there and say no contest. And they go, all right, pay a fine. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm there and I'm like, well, I guess. I, so they call my name. And I go up there. And say, How do you plead? I said, well, well, not guilty, Your Honor. He goes, not guilty. I was the only one. Well, what do you mean not guilty? Well, you know, the police officer told me that it was a non-moving violation. And she looked at me and she goes, listen, take my advice, son. Plead no contest. And she said, and I look at her and I said, all right, no contest. She goes, pay a fine and don't worry about it. There will be no points on your license. So that's it? Said, yeah. I said, so you tell me when my insurance company runs a report, they're not going to see this. He goes, it'll be on your permanent record, but it will not be public knowledge. So no one's going to see this anymore. No, it's gone. Just like that ticket was no longer being remembered. It's on my record, by the way. But insurances cannot see it. 
It cannot be held against me. Because the judge removed it. And I tell you, the King of kings and Lord of lords does not remember my sins. Because Christ paid the price. He doesn't forget. I tell you, saints, we won't forget either. I imagine when we spend eternity in heaven and we look upon our Lord and see the marks on His hand, we'll be reminded of what He did for us. The terms of the new covenant, the law within, knowing God and God's forgiveness, all based upon God's work in your life. What is your role? Simply to accept it. Simply to accept it. Now let's turn quickly back to, to where we started. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's talk a little bit about this, right? How, how does this all, what is the significance of the new covenant and the Lord's Supper? How does it all tie in? Well, first of all, the, the very cup that we partake of is the symbol, is the new covenant now remember, I took you back to Exodus chapter 24, and I said, I want you to, to have the imagery in your mind. Because Moses there had the book of the covenant, and he read it before the people. And the people said, I agree to the terms, and he took the blood, he sprinkled it on the altar. The altar simplified the other party, God. And then he took that blood, and as the people agreed, he sprinkled it on the people. Now listen, the Lord, on the same night which he was betrayed, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took, he also took a cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. Saints, I tell you, that Lord's Supper is the very same scene we see in Exodus chapter 24. It's not Moses standing there giving you the terms of the covenant and and waiting for your acceptance and, and, and for him to hand you the blood of the sacrifice that would ratify that covenant. But it's the Lord Jesus himself when you sit in these chairs and that come that cup is passed to you. Yes, it's passed to you by a brother or sister. But it's passed to you by our Lord Jesus Christ. And you take this cup. The cup of the new covenant. In all its terms. And when you take it, you are saying, yes, Lord, I agree to the terms. Yes, I agree to the terms. Lord... Write your law in my heart. Conquer my heart and my mind more deeply with your holy word. Lord, renew me. That's what you're saying when you take that cup. It's of great importance. It's not something that you should take lightly. And Paul continues to illustrate that. It's not something that you should take lightly. Carelessly, because they were in the book of Corinthians 
in the Corinthians church. They were having a fellowship dinner before the Lord's Supper. And they weren't doing it in a very loving way. And some people who were rich would bring a feast for themselves. And they would eat and drink. And the poor people would come and they would have nothing. And they would be hungry. It says that some of them were even drunk. At the remembrance table. Drunk. And Paul says, Oh, be careful. Whoever eats of this bread and drinks of this cup in an unworthy manner. What does he say? Is guilty of the body and blood of our Lord. It's no simple meeting. There's great importance behind it. Paul continues in to say, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. Now, I do have to pause to explain a little bit about what does it mean to be worthy? What does it mean to eat unworthily? Because there's a lot of misconceptions concerning that. Can any of us sit on a Sunday morning and say, I feel worthy. (laughs) I'm 100%. No, I I, I doubt that. If you're honest and sincere with yourself, we're not worthy. In fact, the the New Testament tells you you're not worthy, right? Philippians, Philippians put it this way. He who begun a good work in you will complete it. When? When? In the day of Christ. Listen, you, you and I here upon this earth, we walk this earth with renewed hearts and renewed minds. But we're still walking this earth. We still have this sinful flesh. We still fight the old man and the new man. Paul, Paul declared it to us in Romans chapter 7, didn't he? The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Oh, but pray be to God, there will be a day when this old flesh will be transformed. And it will be like my Savior. And then I will be worthy. So how do we approach this meeting if we're not worthy? Well, the answer is verse 28 there. Let a man examine himself. Let him have short debt is the word. Let him keep his books and keep the balance short and done. When you before you come to the Lord's Supper, I urge you to get along with the Lord. Lord, Search me, O God. Search me and show me if there's any wicked way in me, Lord. And as the Lord reveals to you what you have done, confess it. Confess it before Him. And if it requires, you have to make it right. But here's the important thing. A lot of people will say, listen, listen. The next couple of verses are kind of scary, you know. If we partake in an unworthy matter and we're unsure, there's great judgment that comes upon us. 
So I'll just err on the side of caution and just not take it. Right? Well, look what it says in verse 20. It says, let him examine himself and what? And so let him eat and drink. Listen, it's not, there is no out. The Lord wants you to keep short accounts. The Lord wants you to remember him. The Lord wants you to partake. You know, one of the reasons this assembly gathers every Sunday morning and follows a pattern we see in the book of Acts is because it's a lot easier to keep short accounts in seven days than it is in three months or a year. To keep short accounts. I'm way over time, and and I thank you for your patience. But I leave you with this. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Our Lord is our Father, and we are His children. And as a good Father, He chastens his children when they're needed. But a child who's at his feet constantly examining himself, there's very little chasing needed. Let us examine ourselves, brothers and sisters, before a God who is merciful and gracious. The Lord's Supper is a somber and wonderful meeting. We should not be scared of it. You know, some people would say... If I don't partake of it, he can't judge me. If I don't, if I don't partake of it, I, I won't drink, drink damnation to myself. Listen, if you are a child of God, Hebrews would tell us that he's going to chase, chasten you no matter what. Because he's your father. He, he's not like an earthly father. He's not like, like, like the high priest Elijah where, where, where his sons were absolute derelicts. And God even told them so. And he kind of, they're all, I don't know. No. Our Heavenly Father would chasten his children because he loves us. So I leave you with that. Thank you for your patience. And if you have any questions or or, or clarification, please just come see me afterwards. I know that there's a lot of information and there's a lot more that can be said about these things. Let us pray. Our Heavenly God and Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the new covenant, Lord. One in which all we have to do is be a willing participant of it. You do all the work, Lord. Lord, we we pray that you help us, Lord, to to be sensitive and to, to heed to your changing of our hearts and minds, Lord. Help us, Lord, to to humbly receive your chasing when chasing needs to be made. Lord, I ask all these things in His precious name. Amen.